This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Few questions heat up the evangelical and reformed worlds in North America quite as quickly as the question of how to relate biblical law to contemporary civil life. A significant number of American evangelicals think that the biblical laws of the Mosaic period, including the Ten Commandments, are irrelevant today because they've been superseded by the New Testament. Others want to reinstitute the Mosaic civil laws. The traditional Reformed approach is to say that the Mosaic civil laws, or judicial laws as they're called in Westminster Confession 19.4, have, quoting from the Confession now, expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. So Reformed folk recognize that Israel had a unique place in the history of redemption, that no nation after national Israel has that peculiar place, and that function has been fulfilled. Nevertheless, we can learn general principles from the judicial law and apply them to our civil life together. Dr. Jonathan Burnside is professor of biblical law in the law school of the University of Bristol in the United Kingdom. And he joins us to guide us as we think about these things. He's author of God, Justice, and Society, Aspects of Law and Legality in the Bible, published in 2011 by Oxford University Press. Our own David Vendrunen calls it the best book of any sort I have read for a while. Professor Burnside earned his B.A. and M.Phil from Cambridge University and his Ph.D. from the University of Liverpool. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Jonathan has literally just gotten off the plane after a long trip (laughs) from the U.K., so we're grateful for his time and for his willingness to sit in studio with us today and to talk. So, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to be an academic lawyer or scholar of biblical law? Well, it's been quite a long journey. Um, I was uh, converted to Christianity when I was uh, a law student at Cambridge, and uh, I think as a budding law student, of course, questions of justice were very much on my heart, and I didn't understand very much about the Christian faith, but I did understand that it was shot through with a concern for justice. And uh, I remember, after my conversion, walking around the libraries and thinking, gosh, there must be so many books, you know, explaining, you know, sort of tying together um, the study of law with um, the Bible and Christian faith and all of that. And I discovered to something of my surprise and disappointment that um, there wasn't really a lot there. And I guess I suppose a lot of it was just actually trying to reconcile my interest and vocation for law with coming to faith, really. So I stayed on after my first degree and did a further degree in criminology, which sensitized me to a lot of the issues around the phenomenon of mass imprisonment and incarceration, which is a problem both in the United Kingdom and in the United States. And that really led me on to working for a Christian think tank 
called the Jubilee Centre based in Cambridge. And uh, we were trying to develop a Christian-based response to the reform of the criminal justice process, which we developed and we called relational justice, which is the notion that it's about doing justice, not just doing time. And that justice isn't just about punishing people, it's about putting things right. And really after that, I kind of wanted to get a sense of whether what we were doing was sort of really well-rooted and founded in the biblical text. So I went and I did a PhD in biblical law under a well-known Jewish professor, Bernard Jackson. And so that was sort of part of the route into it. But I think it's important to say that my interests have never really been, as it were, purely academic. I think in terms of the spectrum, I'm not a theologian. I'm an academic lawyer, I guess, with um, an interest in biblical studies. But I think the application is very important. And I've, I've always gone between doing the kind of the detailed sort of exegetical work, I suppose, but also practice. So I was appointed by the Home Office to do some research on faith-based programmes in prisons, which expanded into a, a bigger study, which incorporated a number of units here in the United States, Florida and Ohio and, and elsewhere. So the journey has really been one of wanting to think through questions of justice in an applied way and recognising that the Bible has a great deal to say about justice and the Christian faith is about establishing a kingdom of justice. So I think those are the twin things which have brought me to this particular point. You have touched on, in one way or another, a number of the things that I wanted to get to. And so I'm glad you did that. That's oh, well, uh, terrific. I'm glad I've made it a bit easier for you. Oh, you did, because one of the things I wanted to get to is how you're actually putting this into practice. And so that's interesting. I want to follow up on that in a bit. But let's establish some basics. Uh-huh. When you say biblical law, what do you mean? Well, it's a term of art, isn't it? If we think about the meaning of the word Torah in the Hebrew Bible, of course, we find that it encompasses increasing, expanding concentric circles. We can just think about Torah as meaning an individual precept, or we can think about meaning a bundle of laws, or we can think about referring to the whole of the Pentateuch, or even we can go all the way up to Psalm 119, and we can think about Torah in very, very expansive terms. I use the term biblical law, really, to talk about aspects of law and legal institutions and legality and justice as we find them in the Bible, not just the Old Testament. And that's sort of the simple working definition. But of course, as soon as you say that that's what you're interested in, aspects of law, legality, and legal institutions in the Bible, immediately you start drawing in a wide variety of genres. You have to talk about not only what is sometimes loosely regarded as law and in terms of modernist assumptions of what law looks like, but also you have to bring in narrative, you have to bring in poetry, all kinds of wisdom writings and, and so on. And so my slightly more complex definition then would be to say, well, what biblical law is, is an integration of different instructional genres within the Bible, because all of the things that I've mentioned, including narrative or poetry or wisdom, are all instructional genres. And they're all saying something uh, about what it means to pursue justice in a society under God. So that's a slightly more complex definition. And I would just say that that does mirror very closely how one would approach, I think, the phenomenon of law. And I think it's important to get a sense that biblical law shares, I think, something about the phenomenon of law, because law just is very, seems to be, in some mysterious and wonderful way, significant within the purposes of God. And we can try to have a very simple, modernist definition of law, you know, law produced by Congress or led various sorts of identifiable legislatures. 
But actually, when we get down to it, we find that law too is actually really sort of quite diverse and complex. It covers all sorts of norms and forms of regulation, even what we call the living law. There's the law to which we are personally committed and which we obey, which may include national laws and may not. So the reality is that we can want a very straightforward black and white definition about what either, either what biblical law is or what law is. But I think the phenomenon of law does require us to see that actually it's an integration of different things, both in terms of how we think about modern law and also, I'd suggest, in terms of how we think about biblical law. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. It's fairly widely held has been in the modern period. And I remember thinking this as a non-Christian and being either told this or it being applied to me that the Bible is an ancient book. We are modern and now late modern people. And the Bible is therefore hopelessly antiquated and therefore irrelevant to modern, late modern public life. But you clearly don't accept that. So help us If someone's thinking, well, you know, I believe the Bible, or I think the Bible is interesting, I believe in Jesus, but I have no idea what to do with biblical law, which you just said is a complex thing relative to modern life. Well, I think people can say that without believing in Jesus as well, can't they? I think the key phrase that you used was to say modern, lit, modern life. Well, where has our modern, lit, modern life come from? We live in a world, we live in a society whether we identify, self-identify as religious, secular, post-secular, modern, post-modern, whatever, which has been profoundly influenced by the Bible. It's ideas about justice, fairness, equity, mercy, and, and so on. So it's relevant because the evidence of that, you know, the cultural furniture, um, so where it's still all around us. So just because we're not aware of it, perhaps now, doesn't mean that it hasn't played a foundational and shaping role in how we got where we are. Well, yes. I mean, ideas have a biography, institutions have a biography. And, uh, you know, if we want to call ourselves educated, whether we're a Christian or not, we have to grapple with that heritage. You know, we take for granted ideas about the rule of law, that um, government is not above the law. Oh, we used uh, to. That we, well, but... Even we recognise the, the truth even in the exception, don't we? That uh, government is supposed to be accountable and we speak truth yeah. to power. That's not accidental. That has come from somewhere. I mean, it's often been said that uh, the book of Deuteronomy, with its separations of power and authority between the king and the priests and uh, prophets and so on, all acting as sort of constraints and bricks upon the other, is the most ancient antecedent to the American constitution. So these things are relevant, uh, they're powerful, but I don't think we can say, even if we were to accept that, we, we could simply say, well, this helps us understand where we are and leave it at that. I think there is an interesting sort of paradox going on here, which is that on the one hand, as you've said, we can recognize that the Bible has, and biblical law, has played a crucial part in the formation of Western civilization. And yet we think that it's no longer relevant or is indeed inimical to civilised society. So on the one hand, we recognise that it's been impactful, but on the other hand, we seem to want to shut it out of public life. So I think that there's a paradox there, and that paradox makes us ask the question, what are we missing? And I think that part of what we're missing is an understanding of the way in which it can continue to 
to play a role in public discourse and enable us to better seek the common good, whether we're in churches or not in churches or postmodern, secular, whatever. And I think that when we're in danger of dismissing it, despite its influence and our heritage, then I think we need to reclaim that. We need to understand it better. And I guess that one of the things that motivates me is to help people understand it better. I can imagine, or perhaps I don't even have to imagine, just simply pick up the news, but I I can imagine someone saying, well, this is interesting that you want to retrieve this ancient text as an influence on modern life to help shape how we frame civil life and how we deal with matters of justice, equity, punishment, and the like. How different is your project from a Muslim who says, listen, Sharia is a valuable resource for helping to influence, shape, frame discussions about public life, policy, and punishment, and the like. How do you relate those two things? How do you respond to that pushback, as they say? Well, let's recognize the plurality of our society. It is fragmented. There are multiple voices in the public square, and they represent very different worldviews. They represent very different agendas. The reality is that everybody is putting forward different conceptions of what they regard as the good life. And so I simply take my place along with any other concerned and active and participating citizen in wanting to put forward a view in a pluralist society. So at that level, there certainly isn't any difference. And one doesn't have to be a deus to put forward a religious view. I mean, you know, in some quarters, belief about human rights is very strong. It's almost quasi-religious. I, I really don't see the difference between saying what sort of views are religious or what views are non-religious. The point is everybody's got a world theory and ideas about justice are contested. Ideas about the good life are contested and we're all making our contribution. What I think is certainly wrong is to try to exclude people from putting forward their arguments because they are motivated by a religious conviction of whatever sort. I don't think in a pluralist society that that can be right. And we have to recognise, I think secularists have to recognise that we don't live in a secular world, we live in a secular island in a religious world. So we have to recognise that people are going to be making arguments from a wide range of positions, some of which are going to be theological. I don't see that that's in itself problematic or or controversial. The question that you were asking, though, was a little bit more nuanced than that. You were saying, well, then therefore, does that mean that it's all simply... Well, it is all a level playing field at the level of participation, but all of these different conceptions of the good are in tension and conflict with each other. And, you know, if I'm saying, well, why am I putting forward a biblical point of view and not a Muslim point of view? You know, while I defend the right of other people to put forward a Muslim point of view as they do and to seek common cause wherever possible, at the end of the day, I stand within a particular tradition. And I believe that that tradition lends itself well to public good as it has done. And so I think that the difference, I suppose, between the application of something like ideas that come from the Bible and, say, ideas that come from perhaps from Sharia, the difference is that, I think, fair to say, certainly within the United Kingdom, that our history has been shaped by Judeo-Christian ideals and beliefs. So in a sense, it's already part of our legal system in that sense. What we're not talking about then is the creation of an independent parallel system that somehow runs in parallel throne. I think that's really the difference. I think that if I 
talk about biblical law or biblical justice in a sort of a UK context. I'm appealing to those aspects of our legal tradition which have already been shaped by that. So in that sense, there is a sort of an affinity already there because that's our history. You know, that's part of our story and I think we have to recognize that. It's critical to get the gospel right because it is the good news of the work of Jesus Christ that is saving. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. Uh, We need the whole Bible. We need the whole message of the Bible. We need the help of the law. We need the crushing work of the law. We must never undervalue or underestimate the importance of the law. But it is what Christ did that is saving. And what by trusting in what Christ did, uh, we are saved. It is by receiving the gospel in faith that we're justified and all the other benefits and fruits of Christ's work flow out of that. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. The listener, as I am, is a layman relative to the law, but I know there are different kinds of law, common law, positive law. Help us situate Scripture, and you discuss this in the book as well. Help us situate Scripture relative to those kinds of laws and how you envision Scripture functioning, biblical law functioning, in that context. I think that what law is ultimately is about the reconciling of private interests with common good. So, for example, if the level of politics of the lively superstructural mind we decide that we want to have cleaner air or something like that, you know, we might then, you know, pass a piece of legislation which taxes cars. I'm giving this example because I'm looking out on a car park, um, a lot of modern cars. Uh, You know, we might decide that we are going to make corporations pay more tax if they don't have very green cars. I don't know what the policies are here in California, but imagine we want to do that. What law is doing there is it's taking something which is a matter of the common good, cleaner air, and it's dividing that up and applying it at the level of every individual society member. So that when I choose to drive a car or company car because I want to save more money on tax, I am thereby, as a result of pursuing my own self-interest, I am thereby achieving the public good. And so that's what law does, is it reconciles private self-interest and public good. So I think when we're talking about, you know, the role of biblical law or potential role of biblical law, I see it in those sort of political terms, the shaping of legislation that enables society to become in the future what society has already decided in the past its future is going to be. So we're all part of this collective discussion about what society ought to be like, which are, of course, questions about vision. And I think that questions about biblical justice are around, well, what do we want to see? Of course, we want to see cleaner air. Of course, we want to see more care for the environment. I'd argue there are lots of other applied areas as well. You know, we need to tackle things like uh, issues of justice and criminal justice, economic justice, social justice, and so on. And I think the motivation for doing this really stems from the fact that justice is the end of the day, the first requisite of civilization. It's not a luxury. And when Moses says in Deuteronomy, pursue justice, justice, justice only shall you pursue that you may have life. You know, that's quite a, an exceptional thing to say, that justice isn't a luxury, it's, it's life. And that Hebrew word for pursuit, radaf, 
is used, of course, of Pharaoh pursuing the Israelites across the Red Sea in, in a very single-minded way. So when we have these debates about the common good, as I see it, we're motivated by a vision of justice which brings life. Think about Amos talking about you know, justice rolling on like righteousness. Let justice roll on like a never-ending stream. And what's he thinking about here? Is he thinking about what Ezekiel sees, the river flowing out of the temple and bringing life to a parched land. So we're animated and motivated by a concern for the public good in a way that irrigates parts of our society which are stagnating, which are not you know, enabling people to live life to the full. And I think a key part of, as it were, because I think your question is really about the dynamic. How do we see this interacting or interfacing with law and justice and politics and ideas of. And I think biblical law is what it's always been. It's been a protest. It's a protest against injustice. What else is justice but a way of distributing, organising and justifying the distribution of power within society? And that can often work against key groups of people. And I think biblical law and biblical justice challenges that, as it always has then. Look about Moses confronting Pharaoh about the conditions that the Israelites experienced. So you see, I see that's what the dynamic is. The dynamic is one of engaging with politics in the public square with a view to challenge abusive sources of power, to challenge injustice, and to put forward a vision of the common good. And if that's not attractive, well, we have to work harder at our argument which is a rational one. One of the things that you started out describing is what you're doing with your work. So you're a scholar, you teach in a law school, and you write academic journal articles, but you're also actively involved in serving your community and in serving the public good in the UK in a variety of capacities. And you seem to be focused, at least to some degree, on reform of the punishment of criminals, uh, correctional reform, that sort of thing. So talk to us a little bit about how you're seeking to apply what you're doing academically to public life. Well, I should say once that I don't engage in all of those things all of the time, but certainly one of the common threads in terms of application has been in terms of thinking about criminal justice. As I said at the start, I joined the Jubilee Centre specifically to look at questions of criminal justice. Um, and I think the reason for that really is because if you talk to the man in the street about justice, people inevitably tend to think about criminal justice. Of course, there are lots of other forms of justice we can think about, but people do generally tend to latch on to that. And punishment and imprisonment is its most dramatic manifestation. And of course, we can't get away from the social evil of mass incarceration and our current policy of containment of human beings. So inevitably, although there are lots of other questions one could be looking at, the question of criminal justice and penal form is one I think that's hard to avoid. Indeed, it couldn't even be avoided at the Oscars um, during this past week. So yes, I think that's clearly something that is a legitimate source of concern. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So, Jonathan, coming in from the outside, as it were, and looking at the question of, as you say, mass incarceration, what do you notice and what kinds of things would you like to see changed in light of your studies? I would like to see forms of intervention that brought life to people and to communities. At the moment, the kind of society that we live in, both the UK and in the US, um, is, as 
been described by sociologists as the culture of control, where we identify a group of the population um, that we want to control to the maximum extent possible. At the moment in the UK, it's 88,000 people. That's significantly up from what it was when we started doing the Relational Justice Project, it was about 45,000. And in the US, it's 2.2 million. I can recall coming up to the millennium, people driving around with a bumper sticker saying, 2 million by 2,000. This appetite and desire to incarcerate more and more people. And Certainly, as far as the UK goes, what we've noticed as part of this culture of control is people being sent to prison for things which wouldn't have uh, attracted a custodial sentence in the past, Um, people being sent to prison for longer, and more and more younger people, more and more groups of vulnerable people being caught into the net. Why do you think that is? Why the change? I think it has been partly political because governments presumably find votes in making us feel unsafe so that they can then present themselves as the ones who will make us safe. Um, It's interesting that in the culture of control, the facts don't really get in the way. So the fact that in the UK, crime has been declining doesn't really seem to make a difference. We still seem to have the sort of escalating rhetoric of dangerousness and really living in a very riskophobic or risk-averse kind of society where everything has to be ratcheted up and uh, everybody is potentially dangerous. Americans are having the exact same conversation. It might be cast in slightly different terms. but yeah. Well, yes, but the problem with all of that is that, as is often said, imprisonment is just about as an expensive way of making bad people people worse. And the result of all of this effort and expense, which, by the way, we can barely afford, doesn't seem to be making us any safer because the rhetoric is still all going one way. And I think we really need to be start you know, developing some sensitivity to what that actually represents in terms of wasted lives. And it's interesting, just reflecting on on, on biblical law, there's a verse that comes to mind in Deuteronomy chapter 5, it's the bit about corporal punishment. Um, I'm I'm not an advocate of corporal punishment, but it's interesting that in that text, which refers to corporal punishment, it says that if you are going to give your brother, as it says, the punishment, corporal punishment, um, there's a maximum that is set. 40 stripes you shall give him, and not any more than that. And here's the key phrase, lest your brother be degraded in your sight. And I think there's a lot to reflect on there about what constitutes the limits of legitimate punishment, because, you know, classical criminologists would say that, yes, a crime has been committed and there is a state response, but that response is always potentially a counter-crime. And there has to be a justification for it, there has to be a legitimate justification for it. And interestingly, there's Deuteronomy saying, well, it's got to be proportionate, but also there are limits. And the limits that are set there are human dignity, human decency, you know, that we are not justified in punishing people in a degrading way. Now, um, we can all rally behind that and say, well, of course, corporal punishment is cruel and unusual. It's a form of torture, la-di-da. But interestingly, biblical Israel didn't have corporal punishment but it didn't have prisons. And we're very sensitive to the infliction of bodily pain. 
but we really give very little thought to the way in which imprisonment acts as a sledgehammer on people's relationships. So if somebody, as large numbers of people in our prison system, are sent to prison for very short sentences, um, six months or less. But, you know, with all of the impact that that has in terms of loss of job, family and home and access to children and so on and so forth. And within the kind of very relational society of biblical Israel, clearly the notion of removing people from society such that they cannot participate was <laughs> there was a lot of sensitivity around that which we really seem to have lost and and the critical thing there in Deuteronomy is it says not that your brother is degraded in his sight and let's face it sitting in a stinking cell on a hot summer's day with only a toilet and uh, your roommate to look at is pretty degrading but it says degrading in your sight in other words that punishment is something not that we do to other people it's something that we do to ourselves I think there are a lot of costs to mass imprisonment and I think we do need to pause if we're Christians especially and ask ourselves what God thinks about that Um, because we are not always conscious of the crimes or the social crimes for which we are culpable. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.